0: thank you so much to our praise team for leading us in worship. And now we want to turn our attention to the Word of God. And so I'm, at, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 6. Don't you just love the Word of God? I mean, honestly, as a Christian, uh, in this world of in uncertainty and instability and constant strife, God's Word is the steady anchor in the storm. It is sure, reliable, and sufficient, and each week we gather to center our attention on the holy God of the universe and his clear and powerful revelation to us. No ambiguity, no massaging or sugarcoating of the truth, just dialing in on the unadulterated, convicting, heart-piercing, life-changing word of God. Last week, we re-engaged with our study of the Gospel of John after a bit of a summer reprieve. We we took some time this summer to look at the church and the importance of the local church in the life of every true believer in Jesus Christ. Today, we want to continue on in our study of the Gospel of John, and we're going to further examine what we started last week, which was a look at the real-life account of the results of sin and unbelief. So many of us have had people in our lives that we love and we care for, and we've taken the time to pull them aside and to share with them the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And even though we have done that in a loving way and we've been painstakingly clear, they seem to refuse to believe. And it's heartbreaking. There are particular people that I think of in my life that I would love, absolutely love to see them turn to Jesus Christ, to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus. But as I've talked with them, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of interest. But when that happens, when I do tell others about Jesus and they just seemingly thumb their nose at the truth of the gospel it always serves as a reminder as to how grateful I am for God's sovereign, saving grace in my life. Sovereign is defined as God's absolute right to do all things according to His good pleasure, and grace is defined as the unmerited favor of God. God in His love and grace and mercy drew an undeserving sinner like me to himself and I still can't get over it I still can't get over it and I hope I never do this morning as we jump back into this encounter that Jesus has with this large group of people who are swimming in unbelief we'll see that their unbelief leads to a a grumbling that Jesus will confront only as he can So let me read the passage for you. It's verses 41 through 50 of John chapter 6 this morning. And then we're going to take a look at it in detail. Let's look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, "'Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father.'" Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This is one of the greatest passages of Scripture in the Bible. One that I have poured over and reflected upon my whole Christian life. So as we look at this persistent grumbling that Jesus is dealing with here, there are really two major points of emphasis here in our text. If you're taking notes, the first is uh, the root of their grumbling, and I'll give you the second. It's the fruit of their grumbling. So these two points of emphasis here as we break this down today, we'll find the root of their grumbling and the fruit of their grumbling. And this word grumbling is a descriptive word, isn't it? It's mentioned twice here, once in verse 41 and then again in verse 43. It's the Greek word gongodzo, and it means incessant complaining, discontent, and negativity. And you know the old saying, the the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. These Jews who were grumbling about Jesus were following in the footsteps of their forefathers who grumbled about God as they wandered in the wilderness. And I want to take you back just to Exodus chapter 16, just real briefly here, so that we can see that this has been a longstanding history that the Lord has been dealing with. So go back to Exodus chapter 16, if you would, and look at verse 2. Exodus 16 and verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against Him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And ultimately, that in fact is the case when we or others grumble. We're sort of saying that we're not fully trusting in the sovereignty of God we're not fully trusting in what God has for our life some of us have a difficult life right now some of us are dealing with things in our life that some people don't know about but they're heavy they're things that are weighing us down in our life And we ask the question, how are we dealing with those kinds of things? I mean, all of us have had struggles in our lives. We've all had circumstances and situations that have been very difficult that we've had to navigate through. But I can't imagine navigating through some of the things that some of us have navigated through in our lives without the Lord. And when we grumble and complain, and we're constantly being negative about things, what do you think that says to the Lord? we don't really trust you. We'd like to fix this on our own. We would like for this to go away. We don't want to have to endure what it takes to get through this. But you know, God brings us through things for our good and for His glory. Even the negative things of life, the things that are most difficult that we have to deal with in this life, He causes them to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose and that gives me great great comfort so let's go back to john chapter 6 and begin to take a closer look at all of this and we're going to start by examining as i said the root of their grumbling which is rebellion against god verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. So here's where we're at in this narrative. Jesus is in the heart of his three-year public ministry, and he had been performing miracles all over Israel. There are seven specific public miracles that are mentioned in the Gospel of John which serve as signs of Jesus' deity. Jesus' first miracle, you recall, was when he turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. We see that in John chapter 2. His second public miracle recorded here in the Gospel of John, was the healing of the nobleman's son. And we see that in John chapter 4. The third miracle, or sign of his deity, was the healing of the paralytic man at the Pool of Bethesda. We see that in John chapter 5. And then the fourth and fifth miracles were the feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on water. And we just looked at these as we began chapter 6. So these Fourth and fifth miracles both play a big part in this encounter with these grumbling Jews. Jesus was at the height of his popularity. He's being followed pretty much everywhere he went. The people loved the show and they loved to see the miracles that he was performing. But when Jesus begins to use the miracles that he had just performed to teach spiritual truth, the people began to grumble. So if you're taking notes, as we look at the root of their grumbling, they grumbled because of the claims of Jesus. The claims of Jesus. There's three claims here in our text. First, he claimed to be the source of eternal life. Look at verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. So as we said last week, Jesus is playing off of his feeding of the 5,000 from the young boys, two fishes and five small loaves of bread. And he tells the people that he's the bread of life, not physical bread, but spiritual bread. He is the source of, of eternal life. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the great offer of salvation from God. All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the bread of life will be Saved. This is crystal clear in Scripture. All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But man has a problem. Man has a big problem. And as we'll see today his problem gets in the way of his belief or his turning to Christ for salvation. And all this actually is a reminder that this life that we live in, our bodies, is really just temporary. Eventually, our bodies will die. Whenever Kathy and I go back to our hometown, uh, I always in honor of my parents and grandparents i i always will go out to the cemetery and i will spend some time there and i know <laughs> i know that yes their bodies are in the grave but their spirits or their soul is not there but i don't get back to my hometown very often and so it's a little bit of a sentimental thing for me to be able to go into See their graves. My grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, all in Oak Ridge Cemetery. And it's really pretty cool, to be honest with you. You can see Abraham Lincoln's tomb from my family's graves. And that cost a lot more when we were arranging for their burials because the great monument to Abraham Lincoln is in plain view. But I always go back, I always look at their tombstones. And I remember when they first passed away, especially my mom, very abruptly, I would go out, and this may sound unusual or strange, but I would talk to her. I knew that it was just her body in the grave, but I missed her so much. That it was good for me just to be able to talk. It's a reminder that our bodies are just temporary. But the truth is, our souls will live on forever. You see, there, there are two major components to every person that God has created there's a material component on the one hand, and there's an immaterial component on the other hand. So we have our physical bodies, the material component. We have the immaterial component, which consists of our soul or our spirit, both of which are infected with sin. The moment we are conceived in sin, our bodies begin the process of dying This is a reminder of the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, we'll talk about this more in a moment, but it's important to know that when we inherited the sin nature from Adam, it infected every aspect of our being. And there are really three major components of every man intellect, emotions, and will. And so when the Bible says that we were created in the image of God, I believe that's what he's talking about, that we were created with these components, intellect, emotions, and a will. But because of our sin nature that we inherited from Adam, none of those three components are pure. They're all tainted with sin, And so when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, their bodies began to age, and eventually their bodies died, but their souls began to die as well. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 says, the soul that sins, it shall die. Not that the soul ceases to exist, no, it it lives on forever, it just spiritually dies. So when Jesus says to the people that he is the bread of life, literally the source of eternal life, they grumbled that he would have the audacity to make such a claim. Second, in addition to claiming that he was the source of eternal life, they grumbled because he claimed to have come down from heaven. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he say I have come down out of heaven? Well, because these grumbling Jews were unregenerate, they were thinking purely on human terms. They say, how in the world can he say that he came down of heaven? We know his mom and dad. Something's not right with this guy. He's claiming to come down from heaven, but we know Joseph. We know Mary. We've known him for years. Something's not right. And then Jesus rebukes them for their sin of grumbling. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. The third example of their grumbling was as a result of him claiming to have seen the Father. We see this here in verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. This reaffirms Jesus' ultimate claim That he is God. And essentially, that is the theme as we work our way through the Gospel of John. It is the deity of Christ, it's it's the proof of Jesus' deity. There are these seven miracles that serve as the seven signs of his deity. There are these seven distinct I am statements that are found here in the Gospel of John that point to his deity. Jesus claims to have seen the Father. How can he do that? Well, he can do that because he is a part of the eternal Godhead. He is God. This is exactly how the Gospel of John begins. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is the Logos, the visible, tangible expression of of God in the beginning was the word the logos and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him not even one thing came into being that's come into being later in chapter 10 of this gospel Jesus will blow the people away when he will say that I and the father are one And then in John 14, 9, he'll say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus hasn't just seen God, he is God, and that's the point. And people are accountable to him, and that doesn't sit well with sinners. And so these Jewish thrill-seekers continue to grumble about Jesus and his claims, which leads us then to number two, the fruit of their grumbling which is alienation from God. They grumbled because of the condition of their hearts. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Now it's starting to get interesting all of that to get to this. Here in verse 44, Jesus says unequivocally that the source of salvation is God. The source of salvation is God. Look at verse 44 again. (laughs) Profound. No one can come to me, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Sinful man not only lacks the desire to turn to Jesus in faith, he lacks the ability, Jesus says. No one can come to him unless the Father draws him. This clearly confirms that God is on the front end of man's salvation and not the back end. We love him because he first loved us. We choose to believe in him because he chose us before the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying no one would ever turn to him in faith without God drawing him. He's saying that no one can come to him without the foreordained approval of God. Why? Because God is sovereign over all things including the salvation of the souls of men. Now what about John 6:37 that we looked at last week? I have heard some say that in John 6:37 that Jesus is giving two categories of those who can or will come to Him in repentance and faith. Those people whom the Father has given to the Son and those other people who come on their own. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now hold on to your hats, we're going to take a deep dive into this, this morning. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. John six forty four clarifies that Jesus is speaking of the same people in verse 37. It's not two groups of people. He's talking about the same group of people. All that the Father gives him will come to him, and all those people who come to him in faith, in other words, all those whom the Father has given to him, he will receive and save, and he's not going to lose a single one. You ever lose your car keys? (laughs) Where are those things at? I thought I put them over here. I have told people over the years, and people know me, I'm very routined, I put my keys in the same exact spot in our house. If I walk in the house, those keys don't get sat somewhere else. They go right to the same exact spot because I don't want to lose them. We have a tendency or a propensity to lose things. When Kathy and I moved from Illinois to Pennsylvania, I had been diagnosed with sleep apnea. In the move, my CPAP machine was lost for 10, 11 years. I'm not sleeping very well at night. I don't have my machine, it was lost. What was interesting is just probably within the last year or so, somehow, some way, we found it in a box. (laughs) But I thought, I'm not using this thing. This thing's got to be gross. Ten years of sitting there with no activity. And so if anyone needs a CPAP machine, (laughs) wants to do the work of cleaning it, let me know. But we have a tendency to lose things, right? We lose things. Not just our keys, but important papers, all kinds of stuff. What is so profound to me is as Jesus is explaining all of this, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And those who come to me, it's the same people, those who come to me I will in no wise cast out. He tells them he will not lose a single person. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, all of them. Every single person that God has chosen before the foundation of the world will come to Jesus. In time, they will express faith in Jesus Christ. We see God's sovereign hand in salvation. None of them are going to be lost. I work with people all the time who question their salvation. They struggle with what we call eternal security. And part of the reason why we have struggled with that, and I, in my early years, struggled with that, I think we all have wondered and questioned about that. What we lose track of is that Jesus said, I'm not going to lose a single one of you. Not a single one go to sleep. Quit worrying about it. I'm not going to lose a single one. In fact, he gets real descriptive, doesn't he? He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one is strong enough to pry back the fingers of God or Christ to remove us out of his hand. We are eternally secure. Why? Because he did the work. You see, we think we had something to do with the work and that we are the ones that, you know, are unsure about did we say the right words to God? Did we say the right words? I was tortured. <laughs> I tortured myself, but I was tortured as a, as a high schooler. I had, I had come to faith in Christ and all kinds of things had changed in my life, new desires, new everything, really. But there's these seeds of doubt that pop into our minds. Did I say it the right way? Anybody else? Did I, did I say? Okay, I know I said I'm a sinner. Lord, please save me from my sin. Did I say? So, hundreds of times, when I didn't understand the promise of God through Christ hundreds, maybe, of times, I repeated back to the Lord the same things over and over and over again. I didn't understand. It's God who does the work. Jesus isn't going to lose a single one of us. We can marvel in that. But none of these people that he's speaking to, none of us will come to him unless the Father draws them. Why? Because all men are sinners. Romans 3.23 says, "...for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So Adam passed along the sin nature to all men, and consequently all men have sinned. When Paul says that the wages of sin is death, he's referring to spiritual death, eternal death, the soul that sins, it shall die. So all men are deserving of eternal death, but Jesus, who is the bread of life, offers eternal life to all who will believe in Him. But, but, but man has this inherent sin problem. And the Scriptures get very graphic as to what that means. Listen to the description of our spiritual condition because of our sin. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are slaves to unrighteousness. We are alienated from God. We are hostile to Him. We're unable to please God, nor are we able to seek God. We can't understand spiritual truth. We are trapped in Satan's kingdom, powerless to change our sinful condition. So much for free will. You see, as I said earlier, yes, man has a will. It's one of the components of personhood. But his will is not free. It is tainted with sin. Sinful man can only choose within his nature, and every man is totally depraved. Every aspect of his being is infected with sin. So, God must change sinful man's will so that he may come to Jesus in faith. A.W. Pink, prolific author, theologian, Said this The condition of the natural man is altogether beyond human repair. To talk about exerting the will is to ignore the state of the man behind the will. Man's will has not escaped the general wreckage of his nature. When man fell, every part of his being was affected. Just as truly as the sinner's heart is estranged from God and his understanding darkened, so is his will enslaved by sin. To predicate the freedom of the will is to deny that man is totally depraved. To say that man has the power within himself to either reject or accept Christ is to repudiate the fact that he is the captive of the devil. It is to say that there is at least one good thing in the flesh. It is so. It is to flatly contradict this word of the Son of God. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him the unregenerate sinner is so depraved that with an unchanged heart and mind he will never come to christ and the change which is absolutely essential is one which god can alone produce it is therefore by this divine drawing that anyone comes to christ and so what is this drawing pink asks We answer, it is the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the self-righteousness of the sinner and convicting him of his lost condition. It is the Holy Spirit awakening within him a sense of need. It is the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the pride of the natural man so that he is ready to come to Christ as an empty-handed beggar. It is the Holy Spirit creating within him a hunger for the bread of life this leads us then to the means of salvation which is belief verse 45 it is written in the prophets and they shall be taught of god everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 45 is a paraphrased quote from Isaiah 54 and verse 13. So what Jesus is saying in verse 44 is consistent with the Old Testament. Sinful man must be supernaturally instructed by God because it is the teaching of God's Word that God uses to draw people to Himself. God does not zap people saved. Man must believe, willfully, volitionally believe. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must he do to be saved? They told him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this is exactly what Jesus tells the people. Anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Jesus is not confused here. There has always been this universal call to believe in him. 2 Corinthians 5:20 says that we are literally to beg people to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But the truth is, according to Romans 3:11, no one on their own initiative seeks after God. It sounds like an impossible, bleak situation, but it's not. So God must draw man to himself. Literally, God must change man's will. And how does he do that? Verse 45, through the taught word, through the gospel message, which Paul declared in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which is the power of God unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. How will they hear if there's no one who is sent? You see, there is an inherent power dunamis there's an inherent power in the gospel message how does god draw a a sinner who is infected with sin his intellect his emotions his will his entire being is infected with sin he's totally depraved how does god draw such a one he does it through the powerful gospel message You see, there's no power in anything else to draw someone to salvation. It is the gospel, the clearly presented gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we know and we understand that that message is not a message that the masses will receive. It's an offensive message. It's a message that says that you are a sinner and you must repent of your sin if you want to have a right relationship with God, you must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only way of salvation. It's offensive. It's an offensive message, especially for those whose hearts and minds and will are not in any way directed toward God. But that's what God uses to draw people like us, undeserving sinners like us the gospel message is the power of god unto salvation salvation is all of god's grace and none of man's efforts god irresistibly draws and sinful man responds in faith so regeneration must precede faith. This is the amazing work of the Holy Spirit who convicts man of sin and draws him to God. And this is what the Bible clearly teaches. Sinful man deserves no credit for his salvation, right? It's all of God for all his glory. And this is what Paul meant when he wrote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. All of salvation is the gracious gift of God, even the faith to believe, Paul says. It's all a gift. It's it's a gift. When, When Paul uses the word grace, and when I think of grace, I think of this guy who grew up in church it's what I did it's what I knew it's where I went (laughs) I was in church I was born on a Wednesday and I was in church I think on the Sunday I grew up learning all about the Bible from people that knew Christ as their Savior but I was lost as you can get I was gaining information and I could spit back things. I was even involved in a Awana. I was involved in quizzing. Anybody do quizzing back in the day? You sit on this little pad and when you raise up off of it, it lights up. If you have the answer, you're able to give the answer and you win a point for your team. I was in quizzing. I was in a Awana. I was memorizing the Bible left and right. So just because I was religious and just because I knew stuff and just because I had the habit and pattern of going to church, that did not make me a true believer in Jesus Christ. But I was at a church camp when I was 15 years of age, just right before I was getting ready to turn 16, and the Lord drew me to himself. He opened my eyes to my own sinfulness. I knew the verses. See, here's what I think the problem is. I think a lot of us know the verses. I think a lot of us know. I think a lot of people are in the same boat that I was in. Religious people. Church people. But there's been no substantive change in their life. They're people that know stuff. They know the Bible. They know the verses. They're in the pattern of going to church. But where's the power in their life? Where is the Spirit of God empowering them to live the Christian life? Where is the passion for Jesus? Millions, I think of people in churches today are in the same boat I was in. And this is why I get so emotional about the grace of God. I could have said, God, what are you doing? (laughs) I was in church. I used to give money every week. In church, I would save up for my paper out, and I would take money and put it in the offering at church. What do you, what do you What else do you want? God. How many people are in the same boat? They know Ephesians 2:8:9. They quote it. They, they learned it as a child. It was one of the first verses I memorized as a kid in awana. Do we know what it means? Do we know what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is talking about? He is talking about this amazing grace whereby he extends and draws man to himself to save man because man would never come on his own. I knew the verses. I had good patterns in my life. I was lost. But God did a work. God drew me to Himself. And if you know the Lord as your Savior from sin, He drew you. We didn't figure it out on our own. He drew us to Himself. This is amazing grace. And then finally, the result of salvation is eternal life. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. The truth is that every man, woman, and child deserves eternal death because they are a sinner. But Jesus came to give eternal life to all who will believe in him. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul reminded those in the church at Ephesus that they were deserving of the wrath of God. And he said, but God being rich in mercy... Grace is God giving us that which we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us that which we do deserve. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Jesus called the Jews grumblers. It's a fitting term grumbling is what unbelievers do not believers so it's not surprising that paul told the church at philippi there's no room or tolerance for grumbling in the church that's what the unbelieving world does they grumble about everything always looking for something to complain about or to be negative about and if i have learned anything In my almost 30 years of pastoral ministry, people who grumble do so because they've been influenced by other sinful grumblers or they're not right with God. They're they're trying to cover up their own shortcomings or their own sin. Grumbling is not a natural fruit of a believer. Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling. Grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life aren't you just in awe aren't you so thankful for the amazing grace of God perhaps the most popular hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In our church when I was growing up, after I became a Christian, and after I wrestled with the assurance of my salvation and finally came to understand eternal security, Sunday nights at our church, Once a month, they would have um, requests. So the song leader would get up, and we all sang out of the same hymn book, and he would say, are there any requests? And every single time, I would request my favorite song in the hymn book, The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin, how shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? That should be our hearts. Celebrating the wonderful grace. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve it. But God gives it to us because of His amazing grace. God draws us to Himself. We never come on our own. And folks, we need to celebrate that. We need to thank the Lord for that. We need to tell Him as much as we possibly can, how grateful we are. We could be lost. Totally lost. Eternal death. Spiritual death. But God has done an amazing work. But God His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world. Those whom He created. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever comes to Him will receive eternal life. It's amazing. We don't deserve it. But this is our God. He is gracious. He is loving. He is merciful. He is kind. He loves us and cares for us. Thank Him for The salvation that he provides. Live your life as one giant thank you to the Lord. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. What He did for us. And for those of us who are going to go to Israel in November, we're going to go to two locations of which there's a somewhat of a dispute as to where Jesus died. It is so moving to possibly be at the location of where Jesus took my sin upon Himself. Don't deserve it. I don't deserve His grace. Thank Him for it. Lord, it is remarkable for us to even think about the magnitude of what You've done. People who hate you, hated you, lived their life in opposition to you, sinned against you and your holy law, and yet you loved us so much that you gave a way of salvation for us? You gave Jesus Christ to come and to die in the place of all who who would believe in Him? This is amazing. May we be in awe of what it is that you have done. And Lord, if there's someone here today that has never trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that You would draw them to Yourself. You would use the words of Your Word to draw them. And that they would express faith in Jesus Christ. We thank You and we praise You. We thank You for Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.